This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My research in heroin, uh, believe it or not, now spans 18 years. Uh, I was studying it before it was cool to study heroin. Now it's on the papers all the time because we are in an opioid crisis that started with pills, moved to heroin, and then to fentanyl. I'm going to talk about those three waves one at a time, supply and demand drivers. The reason I present it this way is that um, it helps with public policy to understand the forces that you want to intervene upon. Right? If we don't understand what's driving opioid wave one, if we don't understand that the heroin and fentanyl waves are distinct from wave one, we might come up with solutions that don't address the whole crisis. And that will walk us through all of that. The other thing I want to say is that because we're doing mini medical school, and this is um, uh, Everyone Hurts, great theme, and I'm sure you've had some really good talks. I know most of the people, not all of them, that have spoken to you in the last few weeks. Um, two things I want to say. One is, you may hear me say things that you've already heard, because this talk probably should have been first, but hurting professors is like hurting cats. It's very difficult to get us all lined up neatly in order. Um, you also might hear some different opinions today that have not been, or maybe even some contradictory stuff. That would be good stuff to talk about, how I differ from what uh, Dr. Coffin said, for example, or some of the other uh, folks. The other thing I want to say is that what's really cool about this is that we're modeling what medical students are actually learning as well. The days are over where medical students only learn about organ disease, individual problems. This is a heroin addict, and this is how you treat heroin addiction, right? They will learn about heroin use, the problem of heroin, at the individual level and at the societal level. And along the way, you have to introduce notions of public health. And that's what I study. I study public health. So whatever degree the medical school wants me to come and give a talk on public health that would interest the community or interest students, that's what I do. But what we've noticed over the decades is that that's more accepted now. That in order to better care for individuals, we need to know something about individuals in society. Right? And that's a whole block in medical school now. In the individual in society. Big block in the first two years of medical school. So let's get started. I'm going to talk about the triple wave epidemic, supply and demand drivers of the U.S. opioid crisis. I have some disclosures. Um, I have worked for some pharmaceutical companies. The main purpose of working with them was to actually help create opioids that were less abusable. So they hired me for my expertise in that area. I don't think it, it, it presents any conflict for this presentation. Uh, I'm going to talk about the triple wave epidemiological data on the opioid wave, the heroin wave, and the fentanyl wave, overdose waves. Some of the structural drivers of that, both um, uh, in terms of supply, but also in terms of sociocultural demand. And then, of course, end on how we're going to address this. This comes out of a, a large study that I run from National Institute of Health, National Institute on Drug Abuse, called the Heroin Transition Study. When I wrote this study grant five years ago, it was still early in the epidemic, and we, because I've been studying heroin for 12 years before that, had some idea where this epidemic was going to go. Put that in the grant. They said, let us, let us be on the, on the cutting edge of this instead of letting um, the epidemic unfold without people watching it. So we were doing both 
quantitative stuff, that's using data, you'll see a lot of data today, but also qualitative research. We spent a lot of time in hotspot cities, places like Charleston, West Virginia, Baltimore, um, Maryland, Chicago, uh, places in, in New England like Nashua, New Hampshire, and Lawrence, Massachusetts, because we were interested in how new heroin and new fentanyl was unfolding. Unfortunately, I will not present that data, the qualitative data today, but we were there. We've been observing the fentanyl outbreak as it's occurred. And I'm also very um, grateful to um, gov big government data sets like those from the CDC and the DEA, which I'm using generously in this presentation. So for the first time in 100 years, since the great influenza pandemic of 1919, the U.S. life expectancy at birth has gone down three years in a row. That's for an infant born today is living less than in um, 2014. We look at 10 top leading causes of death. Heart disease, cancer have been number one and number two for a long time. But number three, unintentional injuries, has risen in the ranks. Seventh, then fifth, then fourth, and now third place. The mortality rate was here, that golden bar, in 2014. We can see date up to 2015, 2016, 2017, the increase in the death rate due to this one cause of death. This is huge. It doesn't look like much here. It looks like, oh, it's a quarter inch, right? But it's huge in terms of the U.S. population. What is driving it? Well, unintentional injuries includes a big killer, motor vehicle accidents. But I don't know about you, but my 2017 middle-class car is constantly telling me what a bad driver I am, right? <laughs> going too slow, you're going too fast, don't veer to the, to, the, to the right too much, watch that pedestrian, right? They have cameras all around them and stuff like that. So our cars are getting safer, so the death rate due to the motor vehicle accidents is going down. Airbags, I don't know, my car has six airbags or eight airbags, I, I don't keep track of them. Um, fortunately, they haven't gone off. But, um, you know, we're safer. What's gotten greater and continually steadily for quite a number of years now is this other line, and that's drug poisoning deaths. 2011, past motor vehicle accidents, and I'll show you more up-to-date data now. Drug overdoses have now out, have passed um, the numbers of deaths due to car accidents, gun violence, and even HIV at the height of the 1990s HIV epidemic. It's a faint line there. Sorry about that. Um, and, and this data is a little bit dated. This is 2014 data. Anyone know what we're up to now in terms of annual deaths? 62,000. 72,000 in 2017. Okay. It keeps climbing. But I like this graphic from the New York Times, so I keep using it. Triple wave epidemic. First wave, deaths due to prescription opioid pills. Opioid pills, what we use in medicine for to relieve pain, right? Uh, wonderful medications. But there's been concern about overprescribing and a lot of concern about this slow, steady increase over two decades in numbers of deaths. But then, to make things more complicated, or in my case as a researcher more interesting, a wave of heroin misuse and deaths came along, starting around... 2008 maybe, but really picking up around 2010 and passing the number of deaths due to prescription pills. We more or less only hear about the pill side of this in the papers, right? But yet since 
the last nine, ten years, we've had a heroin epidemic in this country. And now, what we do also hear about in the papers is the fentanyl epidemic, right? 2014, rising with what we call in epidemiology a steep attack curve, right? And that weight of it attacking us is real, right? That curve keeps going up year by year. 30,000 deaths last year due to synthetics such as fentanyl. And we know from history that often drug epidemics are triggered by supply. New drug in town. People take it up. Some people get into trouble with it. Some people don't, right? But if the supply is good, the drug can lead to a problem. How do we know this in terms of opioids? Well, let's go back to the beginning of opioids. First opioid that we created for the benefit of mankind or humankind, morphine, right? Wonderful drug. We did surgery without anesthesia, without pain medicine prior to morphine. Morphine came along, was quickly taken up by doctors and surgeons and pharmacists and used. What happened next? It was a misuse epidemic, right? People got it, started using it for every little ailment, um, became dependent on it. Some people became addicted, some people died. So here was a novel drug. It was iatrogenic. That's the term for medicine-induced problem. We sometimes create problems despite our best efforts. You know, the infection that happened in the hospital, iatrogenic infection, right? So in this case, an iatrogenic problem. What happens next? A bunch of ways of heroin. Heroin came out briefly as a pharmaceutical in the U.S., um, was quickly sent underground, made illegal. Um, long history and all this. But there have been a number of heroin waves, some of which are due to supply, some of which you can call cultural. And there was a lot of inner city use and the jazz era and stuff like that. It was a hip drug uh, for those cats to use. Um, so let's also bring in the notion of demand now. But sometimes it's not just supply. Sometimes it's brought in by, by, by new modes of thinking or new modes of desire. Opioid pills, a lot of people say supply. Too many prescriptions, too much manipulation by big pharma, the Sackler family and the like, causing an excess number of people prescribed an excess number of opiates. I'm going to challenge that notion a little bit, um, but that's the dominant story right now. Heroin and synthetics, new source again. A lot of people don't realize that heroin changed sources around 2010. So there's a new supply of heroin coming into the country, right? Underground story nobody knows about. And then fentanyl. And I'll tell you where the fentanyl is coming from um, as I dissect each one of these Waves in the triple wave one at a time. So wave one, increase in opioid prescriptions leading to increasing uh, overdose problems. What do we do about that? Well, there's been a number of policy attempts to control the vector, control the supply of legal opioids, right? So we're telling doctors and other prescribers to prescribe less, CDC guidelines. We're working with patients who might be doctor shopping by having them agree to have their prescription records reviewed, right? In some states, it's mandatory. You want opioid pills, you have to get, the doctor has to get a prescription drug monitoring report, right? So PDMPs are reducing supply. Pill mills, right? Fully illicit, you know, think, let's just pick on Florida. Think Florida, people going there, faking an illness, doctors faking and coming out with, Big prescriptions, right? DEA clamping down on that. Diversion, 
the notion that, well, I got a 30-day supply for my tooth extraction. I only need three days worth of pills. Where do the 27 days worth of pills go? Medicine cabinet, right? What happened to a lot of those pills in medicine cabinets? Curious teenagers and others took them, sold them on the street. Now, did that happen in every medicine cabinet? No. But enough of it happened that a lot of pills were diverted, right? So what do we do about that? Disposal programs. You've heard about them, police stations and other places will take the pills. No questions asked. And the illicit use um, is the notion that some of these pills can be crushed and injected and stuff like that. So now they're making harder pills, crush-resistant pills, pills that won't go into solution. Those are called abuse deterrent formulations. The goal, of course, is to reduce the supply, right? The question is, is it working? Was the diagnosis right? Too many prescriptions. And is the treatment right? That's what we always ask in medicine. I'm going to problematize and show you that, well, it worked a little bit, but not as well as we would think. And then what happened as a side effect of our treatment? Well, on the left here, we have opioid prescriptions, the same volume curve I showed before, showing a tripling in volume of prescription pills, prescription opioid pills. And on the right, um, hospitalizations for opioid overdose. Isn't it amazing how they reflect each other? So as prescriptions went up, hospitalizations for overdose went up, and as prescriptions go down, overdose is going down. That's what we want, right? Then the diagnosis was right, and the treatment was right, and all is good, right? But remember back to one of my early slides. What's actually going on in wave one overdoses? Wave one is the pill problem. Came down a little bit, but not that much, right? And this is 2014 data. The 2017 data, what we have is a slow decline, right? What's happened to prescription pills? We've gone down four, upper 40s, almost 50% in volume, and the overdose data does not reflect it. So we have a problem. So I'm a drug policy person. I knew from the get-go that an over-focus on supply was not going to be the answer. I hypothesized that. I wrote papers about it. In fact, I'll show you one of the papers in a second. Um, I asked questions like, well, what actually brought patients to the doctor in the first place? What led to the event of the prescription? Right? Published this idea, I met a lot of resistance. Why? Because people wanted to know that it was big pharma and doctors and that it was an easy target. We could do something about it. We can reduce prescriptions as I just showed you, make the prescriptions go down. Successful there. The problem is the public health side, the public health equation didn't equal out because there's underlying drivers. So we're looking for root causes. We're looking for the reasons that brought people into the situation. Uh, published this paper in 2017, Opioid Crisis, No Easy Fix to Its Social and Economic Determinants, right? Social forces that increase pain, increase whatever problem, whatever level of suffering that made patients go to the doctor seeking relief, in which the result was a prescription. So let's explore some of those. Where does the U.S. rank in pain? I know you can't read this. So this is a global pain rank all right, where the longer the bar is the percentage of people who report daily or almost daily pain. Where's the U.S.? We have the short end here or the long end here? This is the U.S. Okay. All these countries, we have the highest proportion of the population, 
who report often or very often pain. SSDI is disability insurance within the social security system, right? So people that had jobs and now are injured, disabled, maybe because of the job, usually because of the job, it's usually considered occupation, but it might not be. Um, what's going on here? Two million to 10 million, quintupling disability in America. King and colleagues looked at this a little more detailed. They said, what's causing this rise in disability? And I'm going to make a very long, complicated paper very short. They said well, one obvious thing, aging, right? Population is getting older, um, and, and, and aging leads to some musculoskeletal problems. But then they looked at the percent of people who reported back pain standardized for 1997 is relatively flat. But the proportion of the population that's disabled due to pain, in this case, musculoskeletal pain, is going up. And so they highlighted this as being a driver of overdose, that disability is correlated. The rise in disability due to pain is driving overdose. Complicated analysis. They also said that welfare reform, this is Clinton era, welfare reform took a lot of people off the welfare rolls who needed, maybe needed, likely needed public support. A whole bunch of them still needed public support and went on medical rolls. So they went from no reason other than poverty, get public support, to being medicalized, okay, getting disability. So that's also driving this equation. We also looked at uh, Social Security. My team and I looked at Social Security uh, disability insurance and overdose and found that if you look at it in terms of numbers, this is sheer numbers, the non-disabled population is driving the overdose epidemic. These would be the disabled patients and overdose, right? But if you look at it as a rate within each population, that the people receiving disability insurance are a high at-risk population, that within them, within that population, we see the same curve we've seen throughout, right? So disability which also leads to access to pain meds, was part of the problem. There's a higher rate of increase among the disabled population than the general population, um, and higher level of pain need and, and opioid need. What else is driving this? Obesity. Right? 2,000, 30% of U.S. adults have a medical diagnosis of obesity based on our algorithms, right? Where is that 15 years later? Close to 40%, right? And just think in terms of the logical chain here, right? Obesity over time is going to lead to joint wear and tear. It's going to lead to arthritis. It's going to lead to pain syndromes. It also could be driving the opioid crisis. Economics. This happens to be a scene in Baltimore, inner city Baltimore, don't mean to pick on Baltimore. I could show you um, any of the other places we go to. But I was, because we are heroin researchers, we go to some of the fault zones in American society, some of the places that are really beaten up, um, where heroin thrives, right? And we've always had this sort of understanding of heroin as being collective self-medication for these places that suffer a lot. But we wanted to look at whether that's just, whether that's just an extreme case 
Well, of course, in some inner cities are so, so desperate. Heroin just kind of makes sense as a kind of a numbing medicine. It could be alcohol, it could be heroin. Um, and, but is there a larger equation here? Are there middle levels of economic despair or inequality or suffer, economic suffering, financial suffering um, that are driving uh, the opioid crisis? Well, we didn't do this work because uh, Shannon Monette in, uh, at, at Penn is way ahead of us. Uh, she looked at um, uh, economic variables, this, this, this standardized measure called um, economic distress at the county level, right? So she compared, like within a hard-hit state like Ohio, can compare counties that have more economic distress from those less economic distress. Put these counties into four buckets, highest levels, two middle levels and lowest levels. And we see it here in color. If you look at the U.S. overall, there's a strong gradient that as we go to counties that have higher uh, economic distress, the death rate per 100,000 due to opioids goes up, right? Midwest, the gradient's even steeper between those who suffer less economically and those who suffer more. And in Appalachia, the whole boat's lifted higher, right? Uh, even, even, even the places that don't have a lot of economic stress standardized for the state, higher than the rest of the country. So she says decades of wage stagnation, chronic unemployment, disability, and poverty all were driving the opioid epidemic. You don't see this in the papers, right? So we just see lawsuits about Sackler. Um, this is some of our ethnographic work. I said I was going to present any of the qualitative data, but I do have some photos. Um, this one is from Chicago, I believe. We must stop killing each other. Back to Baltimore. Um, this is a, a whole block that's sort of bombed out. Um, you can just imagine. I don't have to imagine because I was in these buildings. Drug dealing, drug consumption, um, so-called shooting galleries. Manat goes on to do, do even fancier analyses, again, at the county level, which is really good metric because counties are very different. Marin County, very different than um, some of the poorer counties in the, in the nine-county Bay Area, right? So we need, to, we need to understand these forces sociologically or at the county level. And she now has a whole list of county-level things. So economic distress is what I presented already. Rental stress, the ability to pay your, your rent. Mining dependence, so you, each county can be listed as a what's the leading sector of the economy, Right, so you think mining, you're thinking Appalachia, you're thinking West Virginia, uh, and the like. So mining-dependent counties light up in her analysis as a risk factor for overdose, family distress. On the flip side, what are the what are the protective factors? Right, Differ a different economy, one based on the service industry, tends to be thriving in the last decade or two. Farming is is sort of a statistical trend. You know, farming uh, might be uh, protective. In migration. What does that mean? That means more people are coming in and going out, right? Healthy sign of a community means that there's jobs, there's culture, there's something that people want to move towards, right? Um, or maybe, maybe the rents are cheaper, right? There's something that's driving people there that's protective. And religious establishments, protective. Social, economic, cultural root causes of the opioid crisis, which we don't tend to hear about. Uh, Zerubin Salemi, another very complicated paper, looked at a concept of social capital, 
I'll distill it. You, we can read all these, this list here, but I'll distill it into one sentence, and that is a cohesive community. Community that likes each other, right? They have high civic functioning. They have trust. They have reciprocity, right? Um, places that, so then he put, he, as, as, as all these economists are doing, they put, they put the communities into buckets. This is also done at the county level. And said those places that have the highest Social capital, this kind of community cohesion, have the lowest overdose rates. Communities in the, in the lowest 20% that have the lowest social capital have almost twice overdose rates due to opioids. Social capital. People are looking at loneliness now. People are looking at purpose, right? kind of like a, what I call a spiritual miasma that's going on. Hard to get the data and hard to sort of interpret the data, um, but these, these are coming analyses that are coming along. So what happens if we don't address root causes, right? What are the, when you think of, of, of root causes, we also think of, in public health of upstream causes, right? There's a metaphor of people jumping off a bridge into the river, and then we pick them up as half drowned or maybe even drowned down the river. So medicine's very good at picking up people down river, right? If you look at things upstream, maybe you can prevent some of those drownings, Near drownings or full drownings, whatever. So the same thing here. How do we look? At, how do we address? What happens if we don't address upstream causes? We'll talk about how to address them in a minute. Well, in drug policy, we know that people go from one drug to another. Well, in this case, they didn't actually even have to go very far. They went within the same class of opioids, from pills, regulated opioids, to unregulated opioids. What's that? Heroin, right? And this photo from Philadelphia just sort of symbolizes that between the pill bottle, prescription bottle. And, the, and the, uh, the needle, which represents uh, um, um, heroin use in this particular alleyway that I was in. So we know that heroin use is on the rise, rising number of users. And people who have reported, we've published one of the first papers on this, that they came to heroin because their personal opioid supply dried up. The truck driver had a bad back injury was put on pain pills for a year, two years, three years. Doctor said, no more. Cut me off. What was I supposed to do? Now, if you take 100 truck drivers who had that same exact story, how many made it to heroin? Maybe 3%, maybe 5%. But since the opioid crisis is so huge, that 3 to 5% is a large number of people coming to heroin out of desperation. Um, and we published a number of papers on this transitioning event that happened already, happened quite a, quite a while ago, the, the late 2000s to about 2014. Really keen, I'll show you an analysis coming up, between, between uh, 2012 and 2014, large numbers of people switching over from pills to heroin. Uh, this is Cicero's data. Um, he, this, this paper was well reported that of people entering treatment for a heroin use disorder, what proportion started their heroin career, if you will, with heroin? And what proportion started with an opioid pill? Right? If you were in the 60s cohort, right, most people started with heroin. And then that marches down over time. So then in the 2000s, if you're entering treatment, and he's got data, obviously, over all these, these decades. But if you're entering after 2000, 75% reported their first opioid was a pill before heading over to um, uh, heroin and heroin dependency and needing uh, treatment. Now, I will also point out that this has switched a little bit now. So it's about 
There's new people coming into heroin, young people coming into heroin, and we should be afraid of that. This is Google Trends data. Um, uh, I'm going to highlight another driver of the switch from opioid pills to heroin, among, again, among that 3% who are making the transition. Um, the red bar is heroin, interest in heroin. Uh, so Google just has huge data, right? So it can, it can report on the community, the, the internet searching community's interest in various topics, right? So we can see heroin interest is going up somewhere around 2011, 2012. Interest in OxyContin, this is Purdue Pharma, Sackler family, extended release, high potency drug. In the early days, you can crush it, you could snort it, you could dissolve it, all right? There seems to be something that happened here where interest in this particular brand of opioid pill and heroin happened. That spike up there is the untimely death of actor Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? Lots of interest in heroin around his death, a very sad event. And the trigger, what seems to be the event that splits these two trends, is the reformulation of OxyContin into a crush-resistant, less soluble formulation. Now, is this terribly scientific? Is this, you know, prove it all? No, but it does show that moving from a abusable to a non-abusable formulation during this crisis era may have driven some of the heroin. What are some of the differences between wave one opioid overdose and wave two heroin overdose? Um, one of the first things we do in epidemiology after we sort of count the numbers is start thinking about men, women, age groups. This is an age group graph, right? Who's dying of opioid overdose? Older folks, right? It's highlighted by the red bar, the red box, right? 50 to 64 year olds. And during this crucial time period, 2012 to 2014, kind of flat rates. It was to go from blue to green, kind of labeled level. One, one, one age group's actually going down. What about heroin users, heroin overdose? Young people. And during this crucial time period of switching over, we see heroin overdose grow tremendously in these young folks. And at the same time, pill deaths, overdose deaths are going down, uh, showing transition, showing that as this demographic stops using pills, some of them are switching over to heroin and dying. There's some strong geographic differences. The opioid epidemic, the pill epidemic, affected everyone, all quadrants in the United States. Yeah, we can think about certain places that were hit harder. We've heard about Kentucky and other places in Appalachia. But if you just take country and divide it into four quadrants, even. Within there, there's hot spots. New Mexico in the west, uh, Appalachia in the southeast. Um, Heroin overdose, very distinct differences, right? The Northeast is in blue, and that's kind of always had relatively high rates. Of course, they're skyrocketing now. This is just heroin overdose. Um, Midwest went from low to high, competing. So think of places like Ohio and Pennsylvania. A lot of places that were influential in the last presidential election, places that have had a lot of economic suffering, um, particularly as manufacturing has declined, as mining has declined. So the Midwest particularly hard hit by the heroin, and also I'll show you in wave three, fentanyl crises. Um, the South and the West, relatively low levels, but also increasing 
um, as time goes on. And just to combine now age and region, so if we look at the young people in New England, unbelievable increases in overdose during, um, during these three crucial years. So in addition to people transitioning from heroin pills, we need an additional, we need to go back to supply again, right? What is driving the death rate? Is it just increased amounts of use or is it this idea? that heroin is more dangerous, there's new forms, there's new adulteration. When we wrote this five-year grant back in 2012, 2013, fentanyl wasn't on the scene yet. We hypothesized that it, that it, that it was coming because we saw young people, we, saw, we had reports that the quality of heroin was changing, and I'll show you a little bit of that. Heroin supply is up. Right? This is heroin seizure data from the southwest border. No, this is U.S., U.S. nationwide. Um, you think, well, seizures should be a good thing, right? They should be reducing supply. But we understand the drug policy world that as seizure rates go up, it's a reflection of the supply. So we know heroin supply is up. We know the heroin sources are changing over time. This is going to get a little bit data geeky. I love this, this slide for its prettiness. Um, but just to simplify it, each one of these colors represents a source country. I've been studying this for a long time. We used to actually have three to four sources of heroin coming into the country. But when this big monster came in, this is Colombian-sourced heroin. A lot of people don't think of heroin and Colombian heroin. They think of cocaine, maybe. But the drug cartels there brought in, brought in heroin in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, right? Took over the U.S. heroin market with a cheap, high-purity product. Right? Overdose rates went up a little bit, not, not as much as in the current epidemic. Now what's happening? Green's taken over. Who's green? Mexican cartels. Okay. This says 78% latest data, 92% of U.S. heroin is coming from Mexico. Right? That's a problem. In addition to this change in sourcing, um, heroin coming from Mexico is more purified. It's a technologically advanced formula. Um, they call it, the DEA calls it Mexican white. It's new, never existed before. Um, and it's taking over where Colombian heroin was. Um, I could spend all day on this one slide, but that's data geeky. That's what I do. Third wave, fentanyl. So where did fentanyl come from, right? Was it a, a party drug that somehow, you know, like ecstasy, one kid tried it, liked it, told 10 of his friends, told 10 of their friends. The next thing you know, you have raves and it's the new party drug. Or did something else happen? We've interviewed hundreds of users. Right? Fentanyl was not the party drug. It was imposed upon them. It came in as an adulterant, as a substitute for heroin. Um, good data on that now. A couple of years ago, we were just speculating. It's stronger than heroin, 30 to 40% more potent than heroin by weight, but gram for gram. It's clandestinely produced. It's illicitly manufactured, right? It's not a diverted pharmaceutical product. We like, we like fentanyl. We use, it, we use it in labor and delivery. Uh, we like it because it's short-acting. If the surgeon or the obstetrician doesn't like what's going on, they just stop the fentanyl. It wears off in 30 to 45 minutes, right? So we like its short-actingness, control. Dosing in medicine is really good, right? This is not. 
medicinal pharmaceutical product. This is illicitly manufactured. And I'll show you where it's coming from in a minute. The problem with fentanyl is not just its potency. It's the fact that the chemical family has lots of chemical analogs. Things with names like acetylfentanyl and butyrofentanyl and parafluorofentanyl, um, all of which have different potencies. So fentanyl is 40x. Acetylfentanyl, 3x. Three times as strong as heroin. And the big baddie on the block, carfentanyl, thousand times stronger than morphine. 200 to 400 times as strong as heroin. Right? This is for animals. This is in order to anesthetize an elephant. You don't need to use an elephant-sized syringe. Right? You can use a regular-sized syringe in a big animal with a super potent drug. Right? That was supposed to be funny, but I'm sorry. My jokes aren't so good. Where's the fentanyl coming from? This is not funny. It's coming from China. Most of it. Very little domestic production, maybe a little scattering of labs in Mexico, but most of it by the hundreds of kilos level coming from China. It comes through Canada, where it's pressed into counterfeit, high-quality counterfeit pills. Where are the half-million-dollar counterfeit pill presses coming from? China. They're coming along with the fentanyl, right? That probably explains why pharmaceutical pill supply goes down while the death rate hovers at neutral because it's been replaced with counterfeit pills. Not just counterfeit fentanyl pills, but the pill that killed Prince had oxycodone in it and fentanyl, had both. Um, there's rumors of other high-profile deaths, uh, Tom Petty and others. Again, counterfeit pills are implicated, right? They have fentanyl in them, but they also have other pharmaceutical opiates, right? So depending on the ratio, the coroner could call it a fentanyl death or could call it an oxycontin death, an oxycodone death. Anyway, that's, the, that's, that's for another talk, the pharmaceutical uh, counterfeit pill problem. Some comes in directly through the dark web and, 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 and delivery services. Um, not a lot, though. If you just think about the thought experiment for a minute, um, using the dark web requires a certain amount of savvy, right? Tor servers and all that. Um, you have to be... Uh, it's more expensive product because, you know, it's presumably higher quality. And the DA confirms that. It's a smaller volume trade coming in through the dark web. And I know politicians are making a big deal of it. We just got to stop the postal service and, and FedEx deliveries and all that stuff. But it's very sophisticated. So it's at the margins. It's not, it's not the most, it's not the high volume. Where's the high volume coming from? Through Mexico, where we get 92% of our heroin from. So it's then mixed with the heroin or co-shipped. Um, along with the heroin in high volume. Where's it going? It's going to the region where, same regions where heroin overdose has spiked recently, Northeast and Midwest. Why? Pure speculation now, right? Could be an extender of heroin. Could be um, that uh, my favorite theory is that the Sinaloa cartel has a lot of turf around Chicago heading east. And so they're just in charge, and, and they just decided fentanyl is going to be more profitable. But the profit theory alone is not good enough to explain why fentanyl um, has taken over. If fentanyl was a great substitute for heroin, if people liked it, if it was a better profit margin for the dealers, <clears throat> we would see it in other countries and other areas that have high heroin use, 
Australia, Europe, California. I like heroin in California. San Francisco, L.A., big heroin use. Seattle, big heroin use up in Seattle, right? Not a lot of fentanyl. So more likely a cartel supply-side decision, I think, is the best fit for the data. But where's it going? Midwest and Northeast. And this is a map of that. Okay, this is where fentanyl and other synthetic deaths are highest. Um, we see the Midwest down through Appalachia, all along the eastern seaboard. And California and Texas light up here too, but these are numbers. So if we converted them to rates, that would be much lower because California and Texas have huge populations. Places like Appalachia, of course, would light up even, even darker color then. We've talked a lot about overdose. In addition to overdose, this transition from pills to injection from swallowing to injection, pills to heroin, has other implications, right? We need to think about hepatitis C, HIV, bloodborne viruses. We've had a number of HIV outbreaks now in the country, Scott County, Indiana. Uh, there's been one declared in West Virginia. There's been one declared in Massachusetts. Uh, I think the latest one is now Kings County, which is the county around Seattle. We have to think about other infectious diseases from repeated injections like bacterial infections, endocarditis, an infection of the heart valves, and skin and soft tissue infections, all of which will cost money, may lead to extensive hospitalization. Even if they don't cause high rates of death, they'll have high rates of hospitalization and cost the public dollar. So I'm hoping that I've convinced you that it's not just about supply, that there's other social aspects. This man is homeless. He lives under a San Francisco bridge. Um, it's a, it's a quite a dated photo. Um, look good in black, looks good in black and white. Um, but poverty, malaise, uh, disenfranchisement, marginalization also lead to drug use. Now, I've talked about what happens if we don't address these upstream or root causes, right? How we have a within-class switch from pills to heroin to fentanyl, right? What happens if we don't address that? Next drug cycle comes along. What's coming down the pike? This is a complicated slide, but um, these folks just published this paper in, um, in uh, September of last year, uh, Jalal and the group from University of Pittsburgh, um, looking at 30 plus years of mortality data due to drugs. What do we see? A very scary curve. This is an exp exponential curve. It's a rate, so it's controlling for growing population. But it's basically saying the drugs are getting, regardless of class, benzodiazepines, uh, stimulants, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, regardless of class, drugs are becoming more deadly. And you think, well, the latest driver of that is fentanyl. So here they have broken it down by drug class, and it kind of looks messy, and you're like, well, which drug is in charge there? Well, we can see the fentanyl one. That's the leader. That's what's driving the highest levels of death, right? But what's coming up next? What's coming up right behind the opioid triple wave? The fourth wave, stimulants, cocaine and methamphetamine deaths rising dr dramatically. Here's cocaine, here's methamphetamine. You put these two together, you have stimulant deaths that are competing with the number of deaths due to fentanyl. That's why we need to address root causes. Just a crazy mural from Chicago showing the miasma of pills and liquids and people in despair and all that. So the triple wave epidemic is unprecedented. It is a crisis for the ages, worse than decades, worse maybe in a whole century. 
it has momentum behind it. So almost anything we did to try to prevent, to try to stop pill deaths would have led to some unfortunate outcome, whether it was heroin or something else. Um, but we still must try, right? This momentum can be stopped. Uh, we need to address root causes, inequality in America, economic suffering, social and spiritual malaise. There's been a lack, I'll just say it, lack of federal response. Of course, you hear some splashy legislations coming along with one or two or three billion dollars. They sound like a lot of money. Hurricane Katrina was an $80 billion um, um, effort to help folks there. A good effort, a necessary effort. This epidemic is going to require similar amounts of dollars and resources. What holds us back, of course, is stigma and shame. We don't like drug use. We're embarrassed by it, right? And we're certainly embarrassed by this notion that um, there might be social and spiritual and economic causes of it. What do we need to do? Well, not just focus on supply. All right, we've seen some mono-focused efforts of cutting down the prescription supply and the balloon effects of that. So we need to broaden our efforts. Supply reduction is good, but it has to be done in a comprehensive way along with demand reduction, reducing drug use, making kids resilient, making communities resilient, and harm reduction. The idea that we can keep people alive, naloxone, overdose, uh, prevention, or clean needles so they don't get HIV, uh, or costly problems that will um, land, land them up in the hospital. Um, harm reduction has been shown to work, right? It's cost-effective. So all three of these, supply reduction, demand reduction, and harm reduction, along with community resilience, you could probably put that in the somewhere between the demand reduction and the harm reduction, economic, social, spiritual, community redevelopment. ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. Um, these are the uh, um, extensive literature showing that zero to three is a vulnerable period, that negative influences on the child, if you stack them up, you can get actually a point system for these ACEs. If you have enough of them, high risk of mental illness and substance use in adolescence. So root causes, right? Go back to healthy moms, healthy pregnancy, healthy kids. So I worked with the New York Times um, a couple of years ago on well, what would be an adequate crisis response, $100 billion. This has been turned into legislation. Um, Elizabeth Warren has introduced a $100 billion opioid crisis bill. It's not exactly all the components that I want here, but we interviewed 25 um, uh, opinion leaders in this effort and said, how would you spend $100 billion? Let's get crazy, right? This is a beautiful roadmap right here, and you can get into all the details um, of each one of these quadrants, but half of it goes to treatment, right? We need treatment. There's a lot of people that have been swept up by these triple waves. We need demand reduction. That's healthy communities, healthy kids. Uh, we need harm reduction. That's an orange, right, keeping people alive while we're guiding them toward treatment. And, of course, we still need supply reduction and criminal justice efforts. That's naloxone out in the field. I love seeing it when I'm doing my field work. Stigma remains our biggest enemy. Um, in the HIV crisis, uh, anti-stigma campaigns put compassion to the equation, humanized the people who were suffering, brought in federal dollars, right? So to end, I'll say that, you know, this is an epidemic of crisis proportion, but it's also a crisis with epic opportunity. Treatment and prevention worked in the HIV crisis in the 1990s, brought it down dramatically, the death rate down. And the same thing can happen here. We can either go the slow route by 
hoping the problem goes away by itself or that the community issues kind of resolve themselves spontaneously. Um, or we can put some muscle uh, behind it and make it make the attack curve go in the different direction. With that, I'll end. These are my acknowledgments. I have community researchers, lots of community people to thank. And I have a lovely team highlight at the top that I love working with. And I thank you all for your kind attention. So drug use, let's call that, there's a normal phase to that. Drug misuse, which is the next level up, and then drug abuse, sort of the highest problematic level, exists everywhere on the planet, right? There's no place that's spared. Um, supply and demand rules, right? And, and drug policy people spend all their time talking about supply forces, whether it's um, amphetamine-like substances in Southeast Asia or um, Afghani heroin that goes through uh, some of the poorer parts of, of Europe and the UK. Um, um, it's all about supply and supply falling into the cracks, if you will. That's the demand side of the equation. Those are the structural force of factors. You know, where the drugs settle will often create the biggest problem. Now, that's for the fully illicits. We could also talk about the legal drugs that we have a problem with. You know, uh, many audiences, when looking at a presentation that's focused only on one class of drugs, will say, well, what about alcohol? Alcohol is a much larger killer than anything I've shown here, right? But we've gotten kind of used to that, right? It's a chronic condition. We, we don't know how to deal with it. Well, we do know how to deal with it. There are ways to reduce alcohol consumption among adolescents. Alcohol is probably not as bad as it was the 1950s through the 70s. I mean, it's a little bit better now, but still a huge number of alcohol-related deaths. And they also happen in a long, a long fashion, right? So alcohol deaths go over decades, right? You don't just die of alcohol overdose. You die of liver disease or some other organ failure, right? Um, whereas this is an overdose crisis. Somebody was alive one day, dead the next day. Um, so there's kind of an acuteness here. There's a kind of a, a rawness that, that drives interest and concern in this direction. Um, so I would say between those two things, there's places where the drugs are legal, right? Um, if you constrain supply, let's talk about Scandinavia, right? Um, fairly prohibitive on alcohol. They tax it heavily. So you have to go to a special place to buy it. And it may not be, I'm speaking of Scandinavia broadly, each country is a little bit different. Um, restricted supply, you have to go to special places to get it, taxed heavily so that each drink is very expensive. What happens to consumption? Consumption goes way down, right? And problems due to that go way down. But the dirty little secret is, at least for Sweden, they have a, they have a heroin problem. Right. Um, Netherlands heroin problem. So there are some spillover effects there as well. Um, overall, though, in Europe, and that would include Scandinavia, the whole problem of drug use is just much lower. If you can compare equal sized populations, you know, rates per hundred thousand, and. People could debate why. Do they have a better handle on supply? Well, only for alcohol, not for the illicits. There's plenty of cheap heroin throughout Europe, plenty of cheap Colombian cocaine throughout Europe. Um, 
they might be more resilient societies, you know, more level playing fields kind of thing, social democracies and that kind of thing. Um, that would be one strong hypothesis. They've been, they also champion harm reduction more vigorously um, um, than we have for a longer period of time. And those policies seem to work, including the idea that if you embrace the user when they're deep into their problem and don't lose them because you have trust and they trust you and you're, you know, one day they're using heroin five times a day, the next month, the next year, they're still using heroin five times a day, but your steady presence there, when that person's ready, they don't go to their parole officer, they don't go to their doctor, they don't, they go to you for help, right? And so they've proven the model that harm reduction becomes a bridge to treatment. So they just have less problem there. And it's not necessarily because they have less supply. Um, Asia, bad data, but what limited data we have is uh, China has a big problem, alcohol and drugs. Uh, most countries in Southeast Asia do. Um, they've had um, there's some fanatical policies going on. You think about you know sort of Duarte and his and his um, uh, abolitionist scheme in in the Philippines. Um, somehow thinks that dead drug users and dead dealers is a good public policy. Um, so long-winded answer to your question. It, 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 there's a whole field of comparative drug policy. Um, lots of eyes on um, Portugal. Um, a misinterpretation of Portugal is that they've legalized all drugs. They haven't legalized anything. Um, they're, they're leaning toward doing what we just did, which is legalize marijuana, but they haven't done it yet. Um, um, but they've decriminalized it. So how does that work? So uh, I'm a user. I'm not being arrested for the syringes or low levels of product that I have in my possession, right? Um, but, so, and so the good side of that is prison populations go way down. The cost of running the jails and the prisons goes way down. They took that money, where did they apply it? Treatment? They applied it to that graph I showed you at the end. They put some into treatment, they put some into community redevelopment, some into job training and that kind of thing. So if you're a person who maybe you got picked up for some petty theft or maybe your boss or your doctor has identified you as having a problem, you go in front of a board with a judge. And community members, you can, you can say who you want. You can have your boss there if you want or not your boss. You can have your partner there if you want. You can have your spiritual person there if you want, right? They give you help, guidance. They say, we don't want to treat this as a criminal problem, but we want to treat you. How can we help you, right? Maybe it's a treatment program. Maybe it's medication. Maybe it's better ties with your pastor. Maybe it's job training, right? Model's been tremendously successful. It's a medium wealth country. It doesn't have a lot of money, but it took the money, diverted the money from criminal justice approach to a public health approach. That's the leading contender for the best drug policy in the world right now. Not terribly dissimilar to our drug courts. So we already have it in motion here, but they've just amped it up a log order, you know, more commitment to it. Thank you for that question. Great question. I think our, the education, you know, there's a lot of cynicism around the, the dare and the just say no and the moms for drug driving campaigns, all of which have no evidence base, all of which in fact all have a negative evidence base. It didn't work. But I'm, I'm, I'm more optimistic that we actually could um, uh, do education campaigns that would, with, with, with smart, savvy adolescents these days that would appeal to them and help them understand 
some of the dangers. I mean, the place to start really is either with Juul or with cannabis, right? The problem with cannabis these days is, you know, we're liberalizing it at the time when potencies are through the roof. Um, and so it's really hard as a physician and a public health expert and as a drug expert to embrace the liberalization of cannabis that's happening right now, um, just based on potency. Um, getting back to international comparisons, uh, Canada is the only place that's doing it right. So they said, okay, we're not going to let each province do their own thing. National law, right? National policy, okay? Cannabis is a legal substance for at the recreational levels, right? And we're going to tax and regulate it so that when you buy a product, you know what percentage TACC it is. And with, with a surety, because that company and that product had to go through an independent lab to be tested. And then they tax it proportionally. So, you know, 3% THC, bud, you know, no big deal. Very few people, I mean, out of a million, you might get a couple of people that, that get into trouble with that. But waxes and butters at 28% THC, right? Much bigger problems with that. So you tax them more heavily to disincentivize their use. And we know the taxes work in the behavioral economic environment. So they're doing it right. California's kind of sort of in that direction, not really. Um, but somehow I moved away from your question into a question I wanted to answer <laughs> around cannabis. Um, but, 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 I'm agree- but I'm agreeing with you that um, it's, there must be, must be a room for... Um, conversation about the harms due to drugs in this country among our vulnerable adolescents. Um, we just don't want to depend on it. could be that that's the problem was that, you know, people say, oh, that sounds great. Let's just do these high school things and have the police captain come in and talk about the dangers of drugs, right? It wasn't durable enough. It wasn't big enough. It wasn't, it wasn't early enough. Um, and it was incomplete as a single intervention. If we get anything out of the presentation today is that we need to do all of this. We need to do full range of prevention options, not just cheap educational ones, you know, the cheaper end of the spectrum, which is education. Um, but there'll be cost benefit. It'll cost a lot, but most money put into um, drug prevention, um, the evidence-based ones, the ones that show benefit, actually show benefit plus cost benefit meaning that every dollar in produces, particularly treatment. Treatment is a very strong cost-benefit. Thank you all very much for this great conversation. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.